0: Very first episode of Turquoise Hexagon Podcast, season one of the Four Tune Telling Music Podcast series. Each season of Four Tune Telling will conduct a deep dive into a particular musician or band, and our first focuses on the renowned electronic music duo Boards of Canada. I'm your host, Elroy Gregory Biv, but you can call me Roy. Now I'll be taking you down the rabbit hole that is the music duo known as Boards of Canada. I started this project because there's an absolutely massive amount of analysis and discussion to be done on this group's music. And while there are some fantastic online resources out there, BOC pages, the Tourism forums, the BOC subreddit, and We Are The Music Makers, just for starters, there are no active podcasts looking at their work and its impact. The only previous podcast covering their work, Cast, is now defunct. Now, I'm hoping this podcast is the sort of thing you can listen to, whether you're a new fan of the group, wondering where to start and what to look for, or a fanatic who's been analyzing every album, track by track since the 90s. My goal with it is to explore the discography of Boards of Canada, and look at the themes, symbolism, and of course the songwriting that defines their work. And it is one hell of a rabbit hole. Listening to their albums, packed with addictive music ranging from beautiful to eerie to ambient to complex and layered, is just the tip of the iceberg. Each release tells a story through song. But Boards of Canada don't just hand that story to you on a silver platter. It has to be unraveled, pieced together with hints and clues hidden in the album artwork, in the tracks and the samples they use, in their interviews, anywhere you can find them. Their whole career has the feel of one big mystery, That mystery, in fact, is what I'm hoping to move closer to solving with this project, and it's this. What does it all mean, right? Who are these guys, and what is it they're really trying to say with their art? My plan is to approach these questions with an investigative mindset. Certainly nothing new for Boards of Canada fans who have been known to dig through old interviews, email people who may have had contact with the band for ask for clarification on certain topics, do extensive searching to find sample sources, and analyze songs second by second. As for myself, I'll be open to speculation, but will try not to do so wildly, and I'll cite my sources in the notes for each episode. In another lifetime, i worked as a private investigator, so this approach comes naturally to me, and I'm looking forward to applying my training towards something that I love, namely art and music, and Boards of Canada in particular. Now, going back to when I said that I wanted to answer the question of who they are, I obviously mean that in more of a metaphorical sense. We know that Boards of Canada, or BOC as I'll usually be referring to them going forward, is a Scottish electronic music duo composed of brothers Michael Sanderson and Marcus Owen, and is associated with an artistic collective of musicians, photographers, and filmmakers called Hexagon Sun, originating from the rural Pentland Hills outside Edinburgh. The two kept their actual relationship as brothers secret from the public until an interview with Pitchfork in 2005, purportedly because they wanted to avoid being compared with other sibling groups such as Orbital. This was also really part of a larger pattern of secrecy and seclusion that's only increased throughout their career. Most of the biographical information we have on BOC has been pieced together from early interviews when they were a little bit more open. We'll go over some of that now to provide some background before we go to our diving station and really jump in the deep end. The brothers were born in 1970 and 71, respectively, with Michael being the slightly older of the two. They briefly lived in Canada from 79 to 80, and it was here they first encountered the documentaries created by the National Film Boards of Canada, from which they would draw their name and artistic influence. Their music is often cited as evoking feelings of childhood nostalgia by utilizing sounds and styles reminiscent of the soundtracks to these types of educational films. Though, as we'll be seeing, it goes far, far beyond just that. The brothers moved back to Scotland, uh, particularly Cullen, and were playing instruments together and experimenting with recording techniques as young as 10 years old. When they actually started using the name Boards of Canada, however, is somewhat unclear, and there are a couple of contradictions between information given in interviews and what was listed on their website when it comes to this. The article 2 Aesthetes of Electronic Music, published in Virgin MegaWeb in 1998, quotes them as saying that the name had only been officially in use for four years, meaning since 1994. However, on the discography section of their old website, now available only as an archive in the Wayback Machine, their earliest release listed is Catalog 3, dated 1987, and the art displayed for that album includes the name Boards of Canada. So that makes things a little obscure. It is worth mentioning that early on in their history, they worked with a fellow member of the Hexagon Sun Collective named Christopher Horn, who now records incredible music under the alias Christ. And at one point, they may have used the name Wheel Tower. Hexagon Sun were also known for hosting what they referred to as Red Moon Parties in the forests of the Pentland Hills, where according to Matador Records' official BOC biography, bonfires were accompanied by electronic music, processed television themes, projections, and reversed speech tapes to create an exciting, if slightly threatening, atmosphere. This was when Boards of Canada was truly born. Now, our next stop will be a brief overview of the discography to put everything in context and kind of set up the framework we'll be exploring. Now, obviously there's too much on each entry to cover them all in a single session, so I plan on giving each release its own in-depth look in future episodes. The previously mentioned Catalog 3 was the first of several elusive and extremely rare recordings supposedly released privately to friends and relatives of the band on their Music 70 label in the late 80s and early 90s. We'll eventually be going over these in greater detail. The first to see any real public availability was the 1995 EP Tourism, which was obtainable through a website called EHX devoted to Edinburgh's electronic music scene. The first pressing of tourism was limited to 100 copies and credited the aforementioned Christopher Horn as Chris H. His name was removed from subsequent reissues at his own request, making the first edition copies that show his name extremely valuable collector's items. Now around this time, Sean Booth of the electronic group Autiker took notice of BOC after receiving a demo from them, and helped connect them with the Scam Records label. Their first commercial release, High Scores, was distributed by Scam in 1996. Soon after, per the official Matador bio, the band quote, gave a few performances around the UK, notably including a performance at the Phoenix Festival in July 1997. At these shows, the band used on-stage video visuals which cut from Super 8 movies to blipvert-style subliminal messaging. Affecting listeners on a subliminal level is a long-running interest of Boards of Canada, a subject to which we will be returning. The band also released several bizarre tracks under the alias Hell Interface, including a remix of Midnight Star's Midas Touch, a heavily electronic reworking of Colonel Abrams' Trapped, and an unsettling Christmas song called Soylent Night on several rare compilations. In 1998, the band released their first commercially available full-length album, Music Has the Right to Children, jointly on Warp and Scam Records. Music Has the Right combined ambient soundscapes, vintage synthesizers, and found, natural sounds that would be at home in the documentaries of their namesake, with labyrinthine rhythm sections, hip-hop-influenced beats, and innovative percussion techniques, mixing drum machines, live instrumentation, and chopped vocal samples to mind-bending effect. The interspersed use of children speaking and laughing on some tracks topped off the whole experience with a feeling of nostalgia for bygone nights on summer breaks spent playing outside, and at the same time, the occasional distortion of those voices evoked unsettling memories of staying awake after your mom turned out the lights, staring at the darkness in your closet. The year 2000 saw the release of In a Beautiful Place Out in the Country, one of BOC's early forays into elements for which they'd later become well-known, namely hidden messages and cult references. The four-track EP includes one song called Ammo Bishop Roden*, which is named after a member of the Branch Davidian sect, known for their massacre at the hands of the FBI in Waco, Texas in 1993, and the title track purportedly refers to a slogan used by Roden to advertise for their commune come out and live with a religious community in a beautiful place out in the country. B.O.C. jumped way into the deep end with these themes and ideas in 2003 with their next album, Geogaddy. Loaded from front to back with biblical references, subliminal messages, hidden samples, and allusions to the occult and Satanism, it has a distinctly dark and foreboding aesthetic. Michael described Geogaddy as, quote, a record for some sort of trial by fire, a claustrophobic, twisting journey that takes you into some pretty dark experiences before you reach the open air again. I personally have always thought of it as a sort of inner soundtrack to a frightening acid trip, though when I have actually listened to it under the influence of psychedelics, it's been nothing but a great experience. I found Geogaddy to be an audio funhouse for my mind to wander through, getting lost in mirrored hallways and going up and down stairways that lead nowhere, with the sinister undercurrents only adding to the thrill. Musically, BOC took a step more towards the organic with Geogaddy, increasing their use of live instrumentation while retaining the hip-hop beats and sometimes feverish, driving rhythms of their previous work. The dread-inducing textures of tracks like Music is Math and The Beach at Red Point" alternate with beautiful and sometimes hidden snippets of song. The track Dandelion, for example, which consists of documentary narration about a diving expedition and seemingly tuneless electronic synth tones, reveals a gorgeous, wistful melody when played in reverse. The sound collage piece A is to B is B is to C makes as much sense played backwards as it does forward, with fragments of speech and melody emerging whichever way you listen. This idea of tracks that can be played both forward and in reverse reflects the mirrored, kaleidoscopic album art of abandoned playgrounds and children's faces. The whole work really doubles down on the contrast between childhood wonder and fears that had been touched on in Music As the Right to Children. In 2005, BOC explored new frontiers with the Campfire Headphase, moving away from the fever dream darkness of Geogaddy towards a more pastoral take on their signature sound. The Campfire Headphase marked the introduction, or really a reintroduction, of another instrument to their sonic palette, guitars, re-recorded, distorted, and deteriorated to attain a sun-drenched psychedelic feel. They also moved more towards conventional song structures, stating in a contemporary interview that it was their first attempt at creating a pop record. That said, Campfire Headphase is still classic Boards of Canada, an imagined soundtrack to a surreal road trip through the American West or Campfire music played by Android Cowboys per the brothers themselves. If Geogaddy was a confrontation with the darkness, Campfire Headphase was an escape from it. Michael said Quote, we decided to make an escapist soundtrack, like a kind of sanctuary, a day-glow vista you can visit by putting the record on. To me, it's always felt like a timeless, warm summer afternoon driving down a long, empty highway in South Dakota or Montana with the windows down. Now It's not totally devoid of the unsettling moods that the band is known for. Michael described the scene he imagined accompanying the music as this character losing his mind at the campfire and compressing leaks of events into a few hours in that time-stretching way that acid fucks with your perception. Now one of the primary ways I think they tried to create this time-stretching effect was by alternating between tracks completely stockpiled with layers of guitars, voices, radio transmission fragments, etc., and simple minimalistic synth interludes that provide, you might say, moments of clarity. In my experience with psychedelics, trips have always come in waves like this. Intense periods of hallucinatory introspection interspersed with brief lucidity where you look at the clock and realize what felt like two or three hours was only ten minutes. VOC have utilized this format to similar effect in their other releases as well, of course, but here they seem to have deliberately set out to mirror the format of a psychedelic trip. On May 11, 2006, subscribers to Warp Records received an email with a link to the URL warprecords.com slash... 666. Upon visiting the site, fans were greeted with a short video entitled, Invocation, accompanied by a collage of several short interlude tracks from BOC albums. The film consisted of video from nature documentaries and children's TV shows made to appear as home recording footage, with tape artifacts, a time counter, etc. BOC's trademark subliminal messages were found in abundance throughout the video, with the word, kill periodically flashing at the bottom of the screen in place of the tcr time counter prefix the numbers on the counter flashing to 060606 and porn spliced in at the end of the film in such a way that it takes you a minute to realize what you're seeing invocation is notable because it's probably the closest the general public has ever come to seeing the style of video boc was notable for using in their early live performances and their red moon events Following the video, the cover of the next BOC release was displayed: Trans Canada Highway. Headed off by the track Dave Van Cowboy, the EP also included two additional full-length new tracks, two interludes, and a lengthy remix by American hip-hop producer Odd Nosdam. Trans Canada Highway was described by the band as visiting a darker place, a glacial place, away from the warmth and light of the campfire head phase. Though Left Side Drive became a classic with the fanbase, Highway didn't reach the same critical heights as the duo's previous work. And after Trans Canada Highway, a long period of silence. Years. The fans grew restless and speculation ran amok about a potential new album on forums such as We Are the Music Makers and BOC fansite Tourism. This conjecture was eventually addressed by a poster on these boards by the name of Mark David Garrett, or MDG, a member of the Hexagon Sun Collective who confirmed that a new record was in the works and slated to be released in 2010. Despite MDG's statement about a new release, 2010 came and went, followed by 2011 and then 2012, with some fans believing there would never be another Boards of Canada record. Sporadically throughout this period, the band would tease fans with the promise of new material on their social media accounts, at one time updating their MySpace page to reflect that they were in the studio, another responding to a fan asking on their Facebook page if there was any truth to rumors of a new album simply by saying yes. Finally, on April 20th, 2013, Record Store Day, not to mention the 15th anniversary of Music Has the Right to Children's release, and a special holiday for another group of people, A vinyl record was discovered in a New York City music store, labeled Boards of Canada and containing a short snippet of wistful, degraded synth tones, followed by a robotic voice reading out a series of numbers. The sound was highly reminiscent of numbers stations, mysterious radio stations broadcasting codes and music of unknown origin, but thought to be associated with international espionage. This proved to be the trailhead setting off a long Easter Egg Hunter alternate reality game, ARG, involving videos on Adult Swim, broadcasts on the BBC, codes hidden in YouTube videos, and even in the tourism site banner, and finally culminating in the announcement of the fourth Boards of Canada studio album, Tomorrow's Harvest. This ARG is now known in the fan community as the Record Store Day Incident, and we'll definitely be covering it in more detail in a future episode. After a listening party held in an abandoned California water park, Tomorrow's Harvest was first widely heard during a live streaming event on June 3, 2013. It represented another evolution in the band's sound, hearkening back to science fiction and disaster movies of the 70s and 80s with its dark, cinematic aesthetic and arpeggiated synths. At the same time, the beauty and degraded nostalgia of their previous work was unmistakably present. The album contained, per Marcus, a greater use of subliminals than any other record they'd ever done, as well as other surprises such as an audio palindrome and messages and references hidden in the album art even on the physical CD itself. Even now, nearly a decade after its release, fans are still finding previously overlooked details buried deep in the deceptively lush soundscapes. Since 2013, boards have remained relatively quiet, but not totally inactive, releasing four remixes, Sisters by Odd Nasdem in 2016, Mr. Mistake by Nevermen and sometimes by The Sexual Objects in 2017, and Treat Em Right, also by Nevermen in 2021, as well as The Societus X Tape, a two-hour mix aired on NTS radio for Warp's 30th anniversary. What essentially amounted to a DJ set, Societis X mostly consisted of music by other artists, ranging from jazz to post-punk to experimental electronica, but included several interludes, a remix, and some as yet unidentified tracks, some considered to be Boards of Canada originals. The Societus X tape has been proven to be a goldmine of BOC influences and sample sources. Guiding astute listeners to obscure library music labels and artists from which the brothers picked favored sounds, motifs, and inspiration. Following the release of the Society Sex Tape, boards have restricted their fan interaction almost exclusively to social media, sharing the occasional fan video and liking Twitter posts, many of which are in reference to new material, leading to speculation that an album is forthcoming. In April 2021, a flurry of mysterious activity on several BOC-associated accounts led to heated speculation. Foremost among these was a Facebook account for Hell Interface, which shared a bizarre deepfake video where the melting Nazi from Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, appeared to be singing James Brown's I Feel Good, and added a profile picture depicting a demonic Whitney Houston with rotted teeth. The account lacked the official Facebook Verified Artist designation, triggering debate across the BOC fan community as to whether or not the account actually belonged to the band. Further investigation showed the Facebook account was created on the same day as the official Hell Under YouTube channel, giving strong support to the Facebook page's legitimacy. Sports of Canada have as well been known to eschew the official or verified badges offered by the social media giants. Their Instagram account, for example, is not marked as verified, even though its legitimacy was confirmed when it was linked with their official Bandcamp page. Meanwhile, Instagram and Twitter accounts under the names of Michael and Marcus had appeared, with Mike's Twitter page sharing quotes from the incredible string band and Joni Mitchell, two major influences named of the band. These pages followed the official BOC transmission Twitter page, but were not marked as verified or followed back, once again leaving their legitimacy unverified. All the while, the official BOC Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages continued to increase their activity, liking posts and sharing videos. The purpose of this activity is unclear. Some fans think that none of the accounts are under the direct control of Boards of Canada and that they're run by PR agents for Warp Records trying to keep fans interested and engaged. However, this seems to be countered by comments from MDG, indicating that while the band does have help managing their social media pages, this help comes from their close and trusted friends at Hexagon Sun rather than music industry representatives. In my view, claims that BOC have no involvement in managing their social media accounts originates largely from the misconception of Michael and Marcus' as mysterious backwoods hermits who are above the business of interacting with their fans or even using the internet, a view that has been attacked directly both by the band and MDG throughout the years. So if it is the band running their social media pages, including the unverified Hell interface account and the personal profiles, what is their purpose? That's a worthy question, but one that we don't have time to investigate in this introductory review. And so with that, we've reached the modern era circa 2023, a time of great hope and great uncertainty for Boards of Canada fans. With now more than nine years elapsed since the release of Tomorrow's Harvest, where the band will go from here is anyone's guess. As to where we're going, next we'll be taking a deep dive into the band's releases, from the studio albums to the old tunes, before broadening our scope to look at themes of their work at large. Thanks for joining us, and tune in next week for another episode of Turquoise Hexagon Podcast. Turquoise Hexagon Podcast is a fortune-telling project hosted by Elroy G. Biv and sponsored by the Corporation.